give the spotlight or share the spotlight with someone in the minority. And it's as simple as that. It's as simple as what you're just doing right now. And I take my hat off to you. I take my wig off to you. I take oh. my clothes off to you, my darling. Take my hairy hat off to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> Davina and I'm Ricky and welcome to Fierce Slay Talk, a decamp podcast where we'll be catching up with some familiar faces from the drag world and beyond whilst delving deeper into the obstacles life has thrown at them in the journey of becoming fabulous. So shall we begin? She was Britain's first out Muslim drag queen. In addition to being a recording artist and activist and club promoter. Oh, she's a busy girl. She's breaking boundaries and challenging the norm. Asifa Lahore, welcome to Fear Slave Talk! Yay! Hi, Davina. Welcome. Hi, girl. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm not too bad at all. I'm doing really well. Trying to keep like my spirits up during these January blues that we're having. Yeah, for real. And plus the fact that we're going through the worst, most insane period of history for for (laughs) our generation, at least. (laughs) Well, the thing is, you know, sometimes I think, you know, I like to think of the Roni Roni not as a virus, but as a beer, because, you know, it's. In my part of the world, especially in South Asia, uh, the Roni Roni beer is very, very on point. Oh, okay, nice. Give me a Corona beer. <laughs> so just to cl- just to clarify, how do how do you identify day to day? Day to day, I live as trans female. I am fully proud of that. And so am I. I love you so <laughs> much. <laughs> so we know we know kind of who you are a little bit, but. We want to dig into all of this. So where are you actually from? So born and bred in London. I'm like literally like a full on Londoner. Born in South Hall, uh, which is like the curry capital of of the UK, I would say, besides Glasgow. Um, wow. So, Manchester's yeah. going to be really angry with you about that. Yeah. Manchester's Curry Mile is going to be furious. <laughs> well, you see, I've been to the Curry Mile in Manchester along with all the boys that go there. And I have to say the Mancunians do curry very, very well. But, you know, unless you've been to my tandoori house in South Hall, um, I would argue that my curry is always the best and it always brings the boys to the yard. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to have to get some cooking lessons, obviously, if, that, if it works that well. Oh, most definitely. I can definitely teach you how to make a good tikka masala. <laughs> so what was it like growing up in South Hall as a, uh, a, a, little, a little gay kid, a little queer kid? Uh, you know, for me, I found it really really normal growing up like I thought that I was like everyone else obviously like being born in the heart of the Asian community I saw people like myself around everywhere Um, and it's only when I really got into my teenage years and we moved we moved to South London um, and I began seeing people that were different to me that I realised that, you know, life was going to be really difficult, especially 
once I realised that actually I am queer, I'm a gay kid. Um, and like yourself, Davina, this was around the time that Section 28 was in place. I mean, I'm a 90s kid, grew up in the 90s, but I didn't realise Section 28 was there until like, I'd say much later when it was abolished and I realised, oh, so that's why I couldn't be myself at school and that's why I was heavily bullied and, you know, violently, um, you know, bullied because of this Section 28. Um, but that was just part of my upbringing. Obviously, you know, growing up Muslim, growing up South Asian, that all was part of my upbringing. Um, and for a long time it was normal, but once I realised who I was, then the the earthquake started, shall we say. Okay, how old were you when you first um, t told your family and friends? Um, so, okay, so, the first person I told in my family was my sister. Well, I didn't tell her, she actually read my diary. I was 16, she was 10. Um, and she was the first person I told. Um, and then my friends, I was, my friends always knew who I was. Um, but my yeah. parents, it took a long time. I was like 23 when I told them. Yeah, I sort of lived a double life for a long time where my home life, I was one person, but outside I was like fully queer, fully gay, loving it. But every time I'd come back home, uh, I would sort of change my behavior because of, because of, you know, growing up around Islam, growing up in the South Asian culture. And you think that that had, uh, that made it more difficult in a lot of ways? It made it so much more difficult because I kind of had to navigate all these different identities that I sat with, right? So I had to, on one on one hand, I had to um, navigate um, being South Asian, being Muslim in the household, um, but kind of deny my gayness and my queerness. And then when I was out, you know, out there on the scene clubbing or, you know, attending Brit school as a teenager, for example, I'd kind of renounce my ethnicity and my religion because um, I felt I had to. And I felt, um, you know, my first few um, experiences on the gay scene were, you know, embodied with like racism and, and otherness. So I felt in order to be finally accepted in in the queer community i kind of had to you know not talk about so much about being queer asian or not talk about so much about being a muslim so there was a lot of like volatility and a lot of like earthquakes i call it you know identities rubbing against mm. each other and being really difficult so you've had like uh, all of those things to deal with in the in the gay community how how once you'd come out to them how has your family reacted to your sexuality and your gender um so when i first came out um as gay um this was so so long ago i'm like 37 now believe it or not so it's a long time ago i came out i know i know i can see you <laughs> holding up your hand we're the late 30s kids so um when i was 23 i came out to my mom and dad and all hell broke loose because you know, in 
So I speak Urdu and Punjabi at home and there's no words to describe like gay or lesbian or bisexual. There are terms for like transgenderisms um, because, you know, in South Asia, in Pakistan and in India, where my parents are from, um, the trans community or the Hydra community, as yeah. we call them, is so visible and there's a reference point. So when I first came out, my mom and dad were like, so does this mean you want to you know, become a girl. Um, and at the time I, you know, proudly identified as a gay boy and I was like, no, I'm gay. Um, and my parents were like, okay, we need to like get to the bottom of this. So first point of call is I was taken to Dr. Singh and Dr. Patel, who were like my family GPs. And um, because my parents didn't understand the terms, both um, the family doctors that spoke, you know, uh, Urdu and Punjabi basically explained to my mom and dad that, you know, there wasn't anything that they could prescribe. I um, was gay and although they understood the difficulties around the culture and around the religion, this was something that uh, my parents would have to deal with um, as, you know, as, as a family. Um, my parents then took me to the mosque and I had a conversation with my imam about it and you know for about six months after that I entered into an engagement with my first cousin in Pakistan um, who's a she uh, still is a she was a she then is a she now um, and yeah I entered a really sort of like dark time in my life Davina like I'm not gonna mm. I'm not going to lie about it. I'm not going to pussyfoot around it. I pussyfoot around lots of things, but not that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So it wasn't just, so there's a, a extra pressure, isn't there, within the community, um, you know, as well as just the family to deal with. Was that quite difficult? What about sort of friends that you had or maybe older relatives within the community at mosque? So, yeah, I mean, when you are, you know, when you're getting all this pressure from a community to do the right thing um, and do the right thing as, you know, the oldest son, uh, which is quite a big deal in, in the Asian culture. So I do have an older brother. I'm the middle child, but my older brother is mentally disabled. He's severely autistic. So the next in line, which is me, um, you know, sort of coming out as gay and, and defying the, the cultural and religious norms um, was hard. Um, but at the same time, you know, having all this community pressure to do the right thing, um, I felt I had to at the time um, to do it, to do the right thing by my parents. But also, I didn't see anyone out there that was like myself, that, you know, wanted to, you know, live... Um, be themselves authentically um you know the only sort of gay asians that i was coming across at the time um you know i was going clubbing at places like club kali um and sati in birmingham and zindagi in manchester which are like legendary mm. uh, gay asian bollywood bangra nights but i was coming across people that were sort of living double lives, a bit like myself, where, you know, they were married with wives and kids and would come onto the gay Asian scene or the gay scene and, and do their stuff and then go back to their heterosexual um, setups. Um, yeah. And I felt at the time that because there wasn't 
because I wasn't seeing people that were proudly Asian, proudly queer, proudly gay, that that was the future that I had to sort of grow into. Right, okay. That's quite scary. So scary. I mean, God, I... Uh, you know, I had fear. I also had this pressure to do the right thing. But then I was slowly, like, suffocating. Mm. And for those six months that I was in this... Um, uh, engagement I just fell into like a deep dark depression and it's only when my university tutor um, who I thank to this day he sort of pulled me aside and said look what's up you're handing in work that isn't like above your usual standards and I told him what was happening and he just told me to like he deferred the year of uni my last year and he said you know, he put me in touch with like LGBT charities in central London. And it was the best thing that ever happened because I met um, other gay Asians. I met other gay Muslims who, who were out and proud, who were, you know, who had boyfriends, who were out to their parents, who weren't sort of living like these double lives or weren't in these like lavender marriages. And, um, you know, without sort of pointing blame at anyone, I sort of saw the people that I wanted to belong to. And I also saw the future that I wanted for myself. You know, I wanted to be out and proud. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have a boyfriend. I wanted to be able to take him home to my mum and dad. Um, and I wanted them to be proud of me as well. Um, so, you know, that intervention by my university tutor just, changed my life really yeah it's a it's i think it's incredible how one person can have that kind of effect on the the whole course you know the trajectory of of your life isn't it that one person yeah. just saying look here's some other resources and some other information that that can really switch actually uh everything about where your life is headed Definitely, because, you know, had um, my university tutor not done that, God knows what would have happened, because there was, um, you know, around the time that I was getting a lot of dark thoughts, I was, you know, suicidal, so much was going on at this time, because I was just suffocating myself into mm. believing that I could do this. So um, that intervention just changed my life. And in many ways, um, had it not been for that intervention, I don't think I'd be here speaking with you today, Davina. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, definitely. I can. If it, if the shoe was on the other foot, I don't know how I would have been able to deal with that. No. Now I I met you. I think it was was it two thousand and twelve or was it before that? Was it like two thousand and ten, two thousand? No, it was definitely two thousand and twelve, and it was at the Drag Idol competition. Yeah, in uh, uh, West Five, yes, in Ealing, in West yes. Five, West, and uh, I was immediately struck by a how lovely you were, and b how beautiful, like just so gorgeous, and then also so nice. Like we're in a competition together, and yet it didn't. You certainly didn't approach it like oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat this. I'm gonna, we're gonna have a fight. You know, it wasn't that at all. Um, and probably out of everybody in there um, who was in that competition, because I don't know, there were probably eight of us, nine of us, something like that. 
And yes. I think actually you're the only one that I'm still in contact with because you were so welcoming and so lovely. Um, oh, thank you so much. I mean, I want to say that as soon as I saw you, it was, I, I was in love. I mean, the feeling is mutual, Davina. I mean, you know, if you ever want to have fancy some of my curry, I will more than happily <laughs> allow you to taste some. But basically when I saw you, my, my big thing was your operatic tones. I mean, you were just hitting notes that I could only dream of. And, you know, yes, we were in a competition together. Uh, but for me, I was just, um, you know, I believe that we were in the same semi-final. And if I'm not mistaken, Davina, I knocked you out. You and did. I, I said to you back then that, um, you know, I owe my career to you because had I not... My intention was, yes, I was going to be great. Yes, I wanted to enter this competition. But just like yourself, I wanted, I enter competitions to win or do my very best. Mm. And for me, I entered that competition the second year running. Um, and I, I, I was hell bent to make it to the final. And we were up against like really tough competition. Like in our, in our semi-final, there was you, there was me, there was Lavoie who went mm -hmm. on to, you know, take part in Britain's Got Talent. And literally um, I said to myself that if I don't make it to the final, that's it for me. Like I'm, I don't want to do drag again because I was very much in my early stages then. Yeah. And, you know, had you made it to the semi-final, I think I would not have gone on to have a drag career. So, Queen, I bow down to you. Well, uh, and I say thank you I'm, so much for listen, going the, through. The idea that uh, you would have given up had I not lost, I'm glad I lost. That's fine with me. Because we would have lost somebody, an incredibly important voice in our community. Um, because not only are you a, a fantastic stage performer and a great drag queen and hostess and, you know, all of the things that make somebody who's uh, a great drag queen, you're also a really important voice. Um, you sort of shot into the uh, public consciousness in 2014 when you were censored by a Birmingham mosque and then you were allowed to comment in the press. Now, have you always felt like you were going to be politically and socially involved in those conversations? Or was it just uh, that that was the moment right there? Um, no, I never really set out to be an activist. I just wanted to perform. Mm. And for years, I denied myself from performing because I wasn't out. And I was scared that if I started performing, then mom and dad would find out. So the moment I came out, um, a few years later, I began performing. And for me, I just wanted to perform on stage. I wanted to, um, you know, sing, um, entertain audiences. But I found through, you know, the competitions like Drag Idol um, that instantly the, the color of my skin and you know, the fact that I was South Asian would play a part in, um, in, 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 you know, in my drag. And, um, you know, many judging panels or many audience members would be like, oh, why don't you wear saris? Or why don't you wear, you know, the, the ornate wedding outfits or the ornate jewelry? Um, and I thought, you know, why don't I start using like Bollywood drag? Why don't I start using the burqa? And then that in itself created um, 
you know, for example, Drag Idol, it split judging panels mm. um, down the middle. Some were like, oh, this is so innovative. This is so forward. We need this. And other, you know, audience members or judging panels would be like, well, isn't this racist? Isn't this pushing the boundaries? And I would be there okay. saying, well, racist to who? Because this is my experience. This is, you know, this is, um, I've grown up around Asian women, around Muslim women who to me are like drag queens, you mm. know. If you ever go to an Asian wedding, honey, everyone is in their finest drag. So when it came to like pushing a boundary, I realized very early on that it was actually audience members and the community that were politicalizing me. So I had I could e I had one of two, you know, things. I could either stay quiet and just perform and get on with it or I could actually push a boundary talk about the issues that were important to me and other members from you know the queer South Asian communities you know a lot of people um, you know high levels of suicide high levels of self-harm not being able to be out in the open living double lives all the things that I had gone through I thought you know what let me um let me start infusing my drag with this whether it was you know doing it through a parody song whether it was doing it through music videos and then slowly but surely uh, i began you know talking about these issues on main uh, stream broadcasters like bbc free speech and the debate you're talking about that was censored so you've managed to achieve quite a lot um in did you say you're 37 yes i'm 37 yeah. and i started drag when i was 27 27 so a little while you've achieved an awful lot in that amount of time i mean there's loads of firsts um you've got the channel Four diversity campaign you've won awards so what's the highlight do you think so far wow um i mean look yes there's the awards there's you know documentaries there's all sorts of things but i think the the, the biggest achievement for me was when I received the Attitude Pride Award, um, I went to collect it and my mum came with me. And she, we were shooting Muslim Drag Queens documentary at that mm. time. And up until that point, my mum, although she was supportive to me, she would say another thing to, to the South Asian community and all her friends where, you know, it was one thing to me and one thing to them. And she did that, you know, out of honor and pride. And I say that in inverted commas, but once I won that award, I asked her to come. Um, and I, she said, you know, would I have to show my face on camera? And I said, mom, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, but I would love for you to be there when I accept this award. It's quite a big deal. Um, and she came and she decided to be part of that documentary and, um, receiving that award and dedicating it to her as, you know, the strongest woman that I know, um, and maybe even the strongest drag queen I know, I just <laughs> said, look, uh, this is this award I'm accepting and dedicating it to my mom and I did it in in Punjabi so that for me I'd say is the biggest achievement for me is is my mom fully accepting who I was yeah that must have been an that's really nice. it must have been an incredible feeling as well to to finally be at that place where um which I mean for her actually a very brave thing to do as well 
you're pushing against what you're expected to do, which for, I mean, for anybody is really difficult, but w especially when you're an older person and you, you're part of a specific community to push against what that community is sort of saying you should be doing is really, really difficult. Um, so that must have, sh I mean, that must have felt incredible that, that she'd not only been that brave, but that she was then supporting you as well at the same time. Definitely. I mean, she is my, not only my biggest supporter now, but she is my biggest role model. And um, I don't know what I'd do without my mum, to be yeah. honest. And it's been a roller coaster. It's been an up and down journey. I mean, you know, as queer people, I'm sure you, you in particular can understand that we're constantly coming out. We're always going to be coming out till the day we die. And, you know, with certain people in our lives, it's always a massive journey. And when I look back to my parents, when I came out, you know, at 23, to, to where they are now, and, you know, I have the, the privilege, I say, of coming out twice, um, and, and where they are with me now, and where they sit in my life with, with you know, full acceptance, um, yeah, uh, they they are my they they're my role models, and I'm super super lucky. You talked a little bit about um, singing, and music has has always been a massive feature of of what you've been about and what you do. Um, so, give t let us know what's happening at the moment with with your music, because I know I you know I'm sort of party <laughs> to some secrets so i know that there were things bubbling around in the background what's what's coming to fruition so i've been like recording songs like oh god i mean i'm i class myself as a singer songwriter and i produce my own music and stuff like that so i'm constantly um writing and and doing songs and there was an opportunity to um, you know, write and produce songs for Eurovision for the UK. Um, uh, once I'd done Muslim Drag Queens. Um, and, you know, I really hope you and the Frock Destroyers go to Eurovision. I think we as a country need it. And I would just love to see, you know, the Frock Destroyers kill it at Eurovision. Um, but, you know, I, I'm constantly recording stuff and I can't wait to, for the world to hear my music because... When I'm ready to release it, I'm, I'm ready to release an entire album. Um, and my music is very much infused by my upbringing. So there's a bit of Bollywood and Bangor in there. There's house music in there. There's pop music in there. Um, and, um, you know, when the time is right, I will release it. We get to hear it. Perfect. I can't wait. And, can't you know, wait. there's always an invitation for you uh, to do a duet if you ever, ever fancy it. Always ready. Always, always, always ready. Because, honey, Bollywood singing and your operatic tones will go hand in hand. Let's do this. <laughs> let's, let's make this shit happen. Let's do this. I'm ready. That'd be quite a good Eurovision entry for diverse Britain, like, wouldn't it? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Most, That'd most definitely. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. You're, you're um, a voice for intersectional Britain, certainly, and a supporter of, of um, inclusive sex education. Do you think religion should or shouldn't be a factor when you're thinking about teaching um, sex education in schools? The reality is that I don't think it should be uh, an issue. And I tell you why, you know, I, I can only speak for my upbringing and my own uh, interpretations of the religion that I belong to or, and choose to belong to uh, is, is Islam. So, you know, there are many, many stories 
um, uh, within the Quran and within the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, where at the time that he was alive, many people would go to him to ask about health related issues. And I firmly believe that, you know, although it's not documented, I'm sure a lot of people would have gone to him around sexual health, for example, which I'm a, a huge um, supporter of, you know, uh, positive uh, sexual experiences as well as sexual health. So if we if people back then went to the Prophet Muhammad regarding all health issues, why are we in 2021 and in the modern world, you know, finding it hard to talk about sex, um, you know, whether it's in wedlock, whether it's out of wedlock, whether, you know, whoever you're doing it with. I'm, I'm a very sex positive person and um, I believe that religion, regardless of whatever religion you belong to or not, I don't think um, something as natural and as um, positive as sex and sex education should get in the way. How do you feel about religion and education uh, full stop? You know, how do you feel about religious schools and and that side of things as well? So I went to a Church of England school um, and I'm so glad I did because um, not only did I get to sing like hymns like Shine Jesus Shine and <laughs> Kumbaya, I actually loved it. Yeah. I, that for me is like, you know, where I started singing, if I'm honest with you. So I'm, listen, I'm up for secular schools, I'm up for public schools, state schools, whatever. Uh, and I'm also up for religious schools. I just believe that whatever school you go to, that in the UK, they should follow the national curriculum. And as part of that, they should have diverse um, education because, you know, regardless of whatever religion you belong to or not, I know for me, I valued learning about how other people live their life and what their religion says or not. Um, I just believe in a diverse education. Um, what I don't agree with is censorship. So, for example, religious schools sort of picking and choosing parts of the national curriculum. Um, I know, for example, you know, the last few years there's been the debate about the no outsiders um, um, you know, participation in the national mm -hmm. curriculum. And I believe that religious um, schools should have the no outsiders um, education um, regardless of, of what they believe in. Mm -hmm. um, because at the heart of it, you know, I've heard being part of the, of the community, the Muslim community, I've heard so many bullshit things like, you know, if we teach our children this, then they will become gay. <laughs> and I mean, that in itself is the reason why they should be taught the no outsiders curriculum. I mean, that's why I'm straight. That's ridiculous. That's why I'm straight personally, because- <laughs> Exactly. Because you know, <laughs> we the choose to be. that I had. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is it, yeah. Once you've combined section 28 with two hours of PE I, and you'll be I know. fine. I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding around the no outsiders stuff, though. You know, it's been sort of sold to a lot of families and parents as they're teaching about same sex. They're going to teach about anal. They're going to teach about fisting. They're going to be teaching kids about... You know, these are, we're talking about like four and five-year-old kids. Literally all it is is 
Some people have a mummy. Some people have a daddy. Some people have a mummy and a daddy. Some people have two mummies. Some people have two daddies. Some yeah. people mm-hmm. have two mummies and two daddies. Some yeah. people have six mummies and daddies. You know, it's yeah. just literally saying other families exist. It isn't just straight, cis, heteronormative families that exist. And it, it wasn't mm-hmm. even about... Um, you know, saying this is a better way to live. It was just literally, this exists. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, one other point I want to raise is even if education is censored, I do believe that children or anyone can learn, will learn it anyway, because we have the internet at our hands. You can't, you know, you can't live in the UK, for example, which is such a diverse country and not come across LGBT people or vice versa or any other, you know, minority communities, because, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think like if I, if I wasn't uh, queer, for example, and I didn't want to know about queer people, I'd go out of my house in, in London and just shut myself and shut my eyes from, you know, visibly queer or people talking about queer issues. It's just silly. Like, um, you know, we live, we live in a country where we're going to come across all sorts of people. So I would rather know and learn and, and just infuse my education with all types of, of people in life. I mean, and I, I fully endorse this message. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, talking about endorsements, you've won tons of awards, loads and loads and loads. Which one, I'm going to make you pick, do you think uh, has meant the most? Which has been the one that's meant the most to you? Which award? Oh, oh God. Okay. Do you know what? That is a tough question, Davina. <laughs> I have to say. Um, oh, okay. I would say the title being actually being given the title of Britain's first out Muslim drag queen because it was during uh, Drag Idol when we both competed that that title was sort of given to me when I reached the final and you know uh, it created a lot of waves so Mm. for me I think I having that title and always being you know the first out Muslim drag queen and I've always said that and I may I may be the first out Muslim drag queen but that doesn't mean that there were there weren't British Muslim drag queens before me. It's just that people weren't aware of them or that they were underground for whatever reason. You know, right now, Davina, there's like, I'd say easily, and this is an understatement, there's probably about 500 Mm. British Muslim drag queens in the UK right right now, up and down the country. And um, the fact that we don't know about them is probably because you know, they wish not to be out or they don't want to be out or fall or, you know, it could be down to also whitewashing as well or them not getting the opportunities um, that, you know, the majority of drag queens get, shall we say. So I'm going to say right now, if you are a Muslim drag queen and you are there in the UK and you are wanting to uh, grow your yourself and your uh, platform, Get in touch. I uh, we're not like this. Isn't a huge team that makes this. It's not like a massive machine. It's three little people 
going about their little day, doing their little business. So send us a message. Do not be scared to get in contact with people. And that's something that I would say to any drag queen, full stop. Don't be scared to send a message to somebody if it's something that you want to do. Because, like, you don't know, do you? Send the message and ask. And then maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't, but maybe it will. Can I just say I bloody love you and I will personally send you like a plethora of queens uh, and artists your way. I, and the reason why I love you is you don't just talk the talk when it comes to diversity and inclusion. You fucking walk the walk and you always have done. Uh, and that's one reason why I absolutely love you and bow my head to you is because, you know, when people come to me and say, oh, what more can we do for diversity inclusion you know what more what what can be done and I always say look if you know a minority community you want to highlight a minority community the work of allies is simply if you're an ally and you're in the majority give the spotlight or share the spotlight with someone in the minority and it's as simple as that it's as simple as what you're just doing right now and I take my hat off to you I take my wig off to you I take oh. my clothes off to you my darling take my hairy hat off to you as well <laughs> 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 we're, we're quite lucky in Manchester, aren't we? We've got this gay village and it's a great little community. And then obviously it's often said that, we, that it isn't diverse enough. Um, what, what are your opinions on, on the gay scene as it stands? And what else can we sort of do to make it to make it more inclusive for everyone? Yes, look, I do think that there's a lot of work to be done when it comes to diversity and inclusion um, on the gay scene. Um, when I go back to, say, 1999 or 2000, when I first started going out on the gay scene, um, I would be one of very few brown people within a club or within, you know, a, a gay space. A lot has changed since then. I firmly believe that. Like, it, you know, when uh, hopefully once this pandemic is done and dusted, if you go out to a gay club right now, I do, you know, looking out in the audiences, there's so much more diversity and inclusion. Um, I just wish that that would be translated to um, what we see on stage. Um, and unfortunately, when, you know, drag performers or, or queer performers um, aren't getting the bookings that they deserve, they just go and create underground spaces or they go and create their own spaces which I think you know I'm I'm all up for people uh, creating their own spaces but the mainstream spaces then only cater for some people and um, the majority of drag performers are then erased so I would just say all we can do is in, in, in the fairness um, and work we need to do with allyship, for example, Davina, you do it fantastically where you give spaces, you give, you know, you call out things and you share the limelight and you, sh you move the spotlight to other things when, um, when the time comes. And that's all I think needs to be done is, you know, is, is essentially not even word of mouth. It's just passing on the mic. It's literally going, you know, give such and such a, uh, the opportunity or, you know, there's more to be done when it comes to diversity and inclusion, but it's just about being practical. Small practical steps will lead to big, uh, bigger impact uh, and, and more and more people being seen and heard. Yeah, which is, I mean, it is difficult as a drag queen quite often 
I mm. was in a, I was at least in a really privileged position that like I'm, I'm married to the boss, so I'm not going to get the sack and nobody's going to, you know, oust me from my spot. And that quite often that's been the problem, I think, for a lot of drag queens is that they've not shared that space um, and they've not created that space because they're just worried that this younger, prettier, more interesting, capable, better dancer, <laughs> singer is going to steal their job. You know, that's some of the kind of long and short of uh, even just as a, a white kid trying mm. to get on stage, a lot of, a lot. it's better now. It's much better now than it, it yeah. was. But definitely the old guard were very much called the old guard because they were guarding against anybody else getting their fucking gigs. You yes. know? Yes. And listen, I hear that. We all we all got to pay the bills. We all got to make the coin, right? And actually, if anything, this highlights a bigger problem. And the bigger problem, Davina, I think, is the lack of LGBT venues or the lack of mm. venues around the country. Because obviously, the, the, if the numbers of venues dwindle, then that, you know, that drag tussle to get those gigs <laughs> is going to be tougher and tougher. And maybe the guard then gets stronger and stronger. So I don't know, maybe is this a bigger issue? Well, I think it's some of it is about job security. Some of it is just about, you know, the practicalities of being a drag queen is quite often hand to mouth. Um, and and your job is never secure. Um and then some of it is, like you say, uh, the the venues, because it's not that there isn't a a, um, a desire or a market or a want for these nights to happen, and for for more black people and more people of color to be on stage. There absolutely is that desire, but it's uh, it's quite often I think white people. So there's this. All right, this is a good way to frame it. I just read a story yesterday about a man in Cardiff who set up a website uh, for for people to meet each other called Fags. F-A-G-Z. He's straight. So he thinks that he's being an ally because he's taken something that he doesn't know anything about from a community that he doesn't really know anything about. And he's gone, right, I'm going to call it Fags. There we go. And I'll sell it to the gays. And I think that there is an element of not working with communities in order to create those nights and create those things to happen uh, that can happen from from white people as well. You know, so we we have to be having conversations with people in order to to make events and space for people where they feel welcome. Otherwise, it's just us co-opting something to to make money out of and it becomes a capitalist thing rather than about inclusivity um and it and it's a like it's a weird balancing act i think there because obviously things have to be commercially viable but they can be commercially viable if you enter into a conversation with people who actually have a vested interest in in those things happening he was probably just wanted a reaction for the name for a marketing purposes. Not probably wasn't even intending to be offensive, was it? But it doesn't work. Mm, no, because it is just so offensive. Yeah. And also you're a yeah. straight person. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, the pink pound has been like there for decades. And yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. the conversation I agree, Davina, it's a two way street. Like if you want 
if you want to get involved, have that conversation, have that uh, communication. And yes, I mean, at the end of the day, we also have to look at the business element always of, of, of being booked, of, of certain nights going ahead, because as you're right, it's, it is a two-way street where there has to be some sort of, of balance. But again, that only comes with the communication. Yeah, yeah. But some of that also just has to start from within. Like we, expect, we've, I've talked a lot about Manchester before on the pod. Um, and, you know, Birmingham has a very diverse scene. Mm-hmm. Manchester is is not that yet. Um, and it doesn't reflect the the communities that live in Manchester. And there's a reason for that. And it's because we as a community in the Manchester scene are not making space and making those people feel welcomed um, into those spaces. And so there is a lot of work that still needs to happen. Because after... Um, uh, what was the nightclub called? Zindigi. So after Zindigi closed, because that was being held round the corner at um, what was the big nightclub at the top of the street called Ricky? At the top of Princess Street. Oh, the Alter Ego. No, other side, top of Richmond Street on the left hand side, owned by what's his face? Oh God, the one that used to be essential. Essential. Now. There we go. It was kind of based up there. And then when Essential shut, it didn't get picked up by anybody else. And I don't know why, you know, because clearly that was a night that was working. I mean, when it was on, the street was alive. It was amazing. You know, it yeah. was gorgeous to see all of those those beautiful brown faces coming out to have a fucking great time. And then, and then that's not there. And then those people disappear again. And you sort of think, well... There is a, a desire for this to happen, and and we are not servicing that. We are not, as a community, creating the space for that to happen. And it, and it, and it is a, a you know clearly it's something that is wanted. So I think that there are, there is still lots and lots of conversations in Manchester, particularly that need to happen around that stuff. Um, partly because it's just such a, a massive important scene in the UK, and it's not doing the work yet. Yeah. And people need to take a bit of a leap of faith as well with like promoters and stuff. Because I imagine not on paper, they're probably like, well, I'm not going to do as well out of that. Or I might not. So they don't try. Yeah. But again, that's about as having well. the conversation and bringing people in, isn't it? Who actually yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> know what the fuck they're doing. What What is in the future for Asifa Lahore? Um, I think the pandemic has really forced me, obviously, to like... Um, reflect and, you know, I, I, I don't see myself as an old person or an older person. I mean, I, I think I'm just getting started personally. Yeah. So I've just used the time to uh, write my memoir. So in the immediate sort of future, um, I'm going to be uh, releasing my memoir um, most likely next year. Um, uh, so that's sort of like the the thing I'm sort of concentrating on at the moment is is just writing because... Um, because of the pandemic but Mm. once everything lifts um, just continuing being myself performing uh, pushing boundaries shouting out singing and just being a queen because sometimes we forget with all the hot air going around yeah you know what just be a queen yeah 
not wrong. Um, what, where can people keep up to date with you on your social medias? What are your what are your handles? So my handles everywhere are at Asifa Lahore. Perfect. I love that. Keep it nice and easy. Asifa, it's been a joy chatting you to you today and I can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you. Yeah, it really has. Thank you. <laughs> Well, we have come to the end of the episode. This has been Fierce Slay Talk. You can join us on our journey by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fierce Slay Talk. And thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us going on. We could talk for hours. And if you enjoyed the show, let your friends know. Go on, spread the word. Be sure to review the podcast as well. Till next time. You want it. You got it. I won't hold back. Come snatch it, come take it. All yours right off the rack. No wanting, no waiting. You shake me down, you touch it, you taste it. Come take me here and now. Try it and buy it, the top of the stack. Bag it and snag it, no need to attack. Instant and present, hit go and play back. Right now, right now. Take it and tame it, walk me to the door. Have it and hold it, you only want more. Live it and love it, you got it, it's yours. Right now, right now.